welcome to AdvantageReferee.com, software and services to help you become the referee everyone wants of their game. Making the right call can change your life. This is Richard Every, your host. She has a PhD from Yale in pharmacology and is a postdoctoral research associate at UMass Medical School. Added to that, she has played and coached rugby and is one of the top referees in the USA, refereeing the USA Women's Premier League final in 2018, and now making a mark beyond the US borders, being selected for the first World Rugby Women's High Performance Camp in Stellenbosch, South Africa. She's from Watertown, Connecticut, now living in Worcester, Massachusetts, Amelia Luciano. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for the nice introduction. And you actually said Worcester, correct? So that's that's a good step forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, there are many uh, towns in England that have similar names. Not that I'm English, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, New England is very similar to England in the way that we are named. Yeah. So you describe yourself as a cat mom, scientist, rugby referee, cookie monster, and tree hugger. <laughs> Do you want to expand on that? <laughs> sure. So um, we'll start first with cat mom. So I actually have three cats. One I got when I was in grad school. Uh, she's my oldest. And then I have two others who are very similar looking. And now one of them is old enough that I, I almost can't tell the difference between them because they're the same size. <laughs> But yeah, also, I really care about the environment. And that kind of comes from my science background and the fact that I grew up helping out on my family's farm in Watertown, Connecticut. Well, just to get back to the cats, <laughs> I used to work with feral cats. And, you know, I used to help capture them and spay and neuter and return them and all that kind of stuff. So I, I ended up having more than enough cats in South Africa at one stage. And when I came over to the U.S., I was like, I'm never going to have any animals. You know, I just don't want to do that again. And Simone has three cats, and she went away for a month. So I decided to change all their names so they wouldn't recognize her when she came back. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> Always respond to many names. <laughs> yeah, I know. Mostly, uh, mostly the, the can of food or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. So Cookie Monster... Uh, yes, I absolutely love cookies, um, usually wherever <laughs> I end up. So when I was at Yale, I actually had a kind of cookie dealer at the bakery down the street. Um, cookie he, dealer. Knew, he knew I was having a bad day when I would come in and get a cookie or more than one cookie. Uh, cookie dealer, yeah? Yes. <laughs> so let's chat a bit about your early years. So you grew up in uh, Watertown, which is uh, pretty interesting that... Um, Connecticut has a whole lot of little towns spread out all over. Is, are they all farming communities? So a lot of them were farming communities, but there aren't many farms in those towns anymore at all. So my family, about two generations ago, moved to Watertown from Naugatuck, Connecticut, to start a dairy farm. And my grandfather ran the dairy farm that my mom um, grew up on. And then when she had my sister and I, she decided to move from the city next door back to Watertown so that we could have the experience of helping out on the farm and learning the hard work that goes with growing up on the farm and also kind of for free babysitting because my grandma and my cousins and aunt and uncle lived on the farm still. What sports did you play at school? So in high school, I played uh, football, like swimming and diving and um, track. No rugby at Watertown, I guess, right? 
No, there was no rugby at the time. They had just started a lacrosse team, and that was kind of the new sport at the time. Um, but I played American football on the boys' team. Um, actually, one of my cousins who I grew up with played on the team as well. So together, we were kind of very opposite. Obviously, I was the only girl on the team, and he was one of the best linemen, the biggest guy on the team. So nobody really gave me a hard time because he was there to protect me. <laughs> Were you always an overachiever at school? What did you want to be when you were going through high school, Watertown? Ooh. I always wanted to be a teacher, actually, but then I decided that I should probably aim for something something more complicated, I guess. Not that teaching isn't complicated or difficult, but I thought that I wanted to be a professor, a college professor, which is kind of the track that I'm on now. Um, and I actually wanted to be a plant researcher, but I'm studying human biology now, so... Close, but not quite the same. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Simone's actually a professor and uh, she teaches creative writing and film studies and uh, seems to be forever working, right? Around the clock. Around yes. The clock, I'm sure you do as a researcher too. So then you went to Cornell? Yes. Got a BS in biological sciences? Yes, that's the biology degree that they have at Cornell. And then uh, you introduced to rugby at Cornell? Yes. So my... Freshman year, I was walking into the dining hall going for dinner one night and I saw some people passing the rugby ball around, which is kind of a common way, I think, that people are introduced to rugby on college campuses. And I could just, it was the fall and because I had played football before, I could smell like the tackling in the air, like I just wanted to hit someone. <laughs> and so I asked them what they were doing and what, what the sport was and I thought it was rugby because I had seen it probably on TV before. And they asked me to come to practice with them. And from there, it was history. Never missed practice again. Loved playing. Um, my first game was actually against the Penn State women's team in 2006, which was right in the run of their national championship teams. And we got crushed, but I still loved it. And uh, what position did you play? Um, I was a flanker primarily. There's an interesting bit about your time at Cornell. You went to Costa Rica, to the rainforest. Yeah. <laughs> and you... <laughs> It says you monitored populations of toucans, parrots, primates, and chestnut trees. Yes. How exactly do you do that? <laughs> so I was participating in a project there that was a volunteer research stint where you get to stay in the rainforest for two weeks to three months, depending on how long you want to be there. And I was in a small community with one researcher and a couple of other volunteers. And every day they would tell us to go out on specific hikes. So the first week they took us out on all the individual hikes that we would do. And then every day after that, we would go on these different trails and monitor what kinds of animals are eating the chestnuts because the study was to look at why these particular chestnut trees are important and how important they are for multiple populations of large animals. Um, and this part of the rainforest had these types of chestnuts where other parts of the rainforest didn't. And it was kind of trying to prove that this section of rainforest was very important for the ecology of the region. Do they, I mean, you mentioned primates. Do they have apes and monkeys there or just monkeys? Um, I think it was just monkeys. It was um, howler monkeys, the capuchin, like small monkeys. Um, and I think there was a third kind, but I can't remember what it was at this point. And then you moved on to Yale. We did a master's and your PhD in pharmacology, studying circadian rhythms and metabolism, following your decision to be a teacher. 
Yep. So I decided to go and get my PhD and applied to a bunch of programs. And Yale seemed to make the most sense for what I wanted to do. And pharmacology is the study of drug development. So figuring out new pathways for drugs to target and figuring out new drugs and what concentrations to use them in. So I was kind of in the more development side of that type of research where I was studying a previously unknown interaction between a metabolic pathway and a circadian pathway, which is the proteins that keep you on a like strict sleep-wake cycle. Yeah. I think every day when two or three o'clock in the afternoon, normally after I've done CrossFit, it's uh, <laughs> bedtime. <laughs> That's like the typical nap time for pretty much everyone. And if you can get through that hump, then you're usually good for the rest of the day. Sometimes if you give into the nap, it's the best. Yeah, it's amazing how, how 15 minutes or 30 minutes a nap can uh, revitalize you. Eh? Yeah, really resets your brain. Yeah. So you co-authored six publications or do you call it six papers during that time? Publications or papers is correct. Um, yeah, I'd, I wasn't sure how many that was, but yep, um, helping other researchers do their research and then having some publications of my own while I was there. Um, my lab was actually really neat. It was um, all the projects were very different. So most people in my lab studied cardiovascular biology and more how your blood vessels function. So I was kind of the odd one out studying circadian rhythms and having to sleep overnight in the lab. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Were you studying yourself? I sometimes studied myself, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I didn't have enough um, N numbers, we call it, or enough experimental evidence because I was just one person. But it, I could tell that some of the things I was studying were definitely true for myself. And how do uh, cookies affect your circadian rhythms? Well, if I slept overnight in the lab, sometimes I would um, need a cookie to keep me awake throughout the rest of the day, the next day. <laughs> Does sugar really help? Sugar can make you feel more awake or it can, it depends on when you eat it during the day and what else you're eating it with. But sometimes cookie and a coffee, you know, will really keep you awake. I think you should write a paper on uh, on cookies. <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> so... Uh... In 2011, you started refereeing. Why did you start refereeing? What made you go to the dark side? <laughs> Playing rugby was a huge part of my life in undergrad. So when I was at Cornell and then when I got to Yale, I played on their team for a year because I still had a year of eligibility and I was a student there. But after that, I didn't, I wasn't able to play competitively anymore based on the, um, the eligibility rules. So I decided to take both a coaching course and a refereeing course within the same month. So I did my um, level 200 certification for coaching and the L1 for refereeing. And there's just everywhere you go, there's a shortage of referees. So I decided when I wasn't helping to coach the Yale team, I could go and referee a couple of games and just see if I liked it and try and help out and give back to the game. And I ended up liking it more than I liked coaching because I actually got to be on the field and running around with the players. And it was incredibly challenging. I'm not sure how many games I went home um, from during that first year refereeing and just felt like I have no idea what happened. <laughs> but it made it made it really something valuable. Like I was being challenged every day at work, but this was a different type of challenging. It was only 80 minutes of challenging and I was very, very shy growing up and even through 
until I got to grad school. And so when I started refereeing, I realized being shy is not going to work. I have to introduce myself to at least 30 strangers before the match starts and then have them listen to me throughout the match. So it kind of brought me out of my shell. It's quite an amazing thing how refereeing ends up shaping a lot of your character. Oh, completely. You played obviously for the one year and then you were assistant coach for two years and then also you filled in as head coach for uh, spring season in 2015. Uh, what was your experience coaching? Because obviously, uh, I mean, it, it, you must have got some value to, to, to yourself and to the game, but you decided to stick with refereeing instead of coaching? So that season I coached because um, they didn't have a coach at the time. And Greg McWilliams, who's um, now one of the national team assistant coaches, actually yes. asked me to coach the team. Um, so I couldn't say no to that. And the value that I got from that, I think, was just learning how to interact again closely with a group of people that you see every day or every few days in our case. Because when you're refereeing, you see the same teams maybe once or twice a season, but it's not the same as the type of interaction you have and the type of rapport you need to build with players as a coach. Um, and though I really liked it, the type of schedule I have with my work makes it really hard to actually coach full-time. Sorry, my cat is meowing. <laughs> I don't know if you could hear it. <laughs> no, no, I actually can't hear it. Simone has a cat that's getting a little older here, and uh, quite often you see the cat howling in the background. And, uh, I think I was speaking to Scott Harland the one day, uh, you know, from uh, Rugby America's North, and the cat howled, and he went, hello, who's saying hello? <laughs> it almost sounds like someone is saying hello. <laughs> So uh, move on to your work at UMass. You know, so you're doing a you're a postdoctoral research associate at UMass, and it says that you're studying adipose tissue, which is fat, really. Yeah? Yes. Yep. Fat tissue. Yeah. So this is your opportunity to tell people exactly what you do, without using uh, any words that we haven't heard of before. Okay. So my elevator pitch for what I'm doing right now is I work in a lab that studies fat cells. And what we're trying to do is look at a particular protein signaling pathway, which means a network that is activated when the cells sense something on the outside. So inside, they can turn that extracellular signal into something inside to help the fat cells either retain more fat and grow the size of the fat cell or to break down that fat cell or potentially just change the type of material or fats that are inside of the cell. So that signaling pathway that we study is one that's really important in cancer and diabetes. And actually, I'm kind of working more on the cancer side of things. So trying to figure out why this pathway is activated in cancer and what are new potential ways that we can stop this pathway from being activated because it helps cancer cells grow. That's great. So you're going to save the world? Um, I don't know about the world, but hopefully something that I work on will lead to something else that will eventually maybe become a therapeutic or possibly help people who are sick. <laughs> <laughs> Would you be doing research moving forward a lot or do you think that will eventually get into being a professor? For this type of career, there are few professor positions. And I'm trying to put myself on a track where I would be a competitive applicant to become a professor. Professor, And that includes many things. One is the actual research you're doing, but also if the type of research gets along with the department you're applying to work in, 
and then what your publication record looks like, and maybe most importantly, what ideas you have for studying new things in the future and how creative and realistic your goals are studying new things. So I'm only only in my second year of my postdoctoral position. And usually it takes about five to six years before you're in a position to apply for your own lab. So I'm kind of just working on that and hopefully it'll work out and I'll become a professor someday. And if not, I can continue doing research in um, an industry position working for a company. So is there a whole uh, community of researchers at UMass? Do you all hang out together? I hang out with people in my lab quite a bit. So there's two other postdocs in my lab um, and a couple of grad students. Um, But UMass community in general is really collaborative. And we have what we call beer hours because happy hour is illegal in Massachusetts (laughs) um, on Friday evenings where people just get together and they talk about how things are going um, kind of informally and some pretty amazing researchers. There's a professor who's not in the department I'm in right now, but used to be, um, who won the Nobel Prize, and just a down-to-earth guy who still comes and watches people like me give talks. So <laughs> it's, it's really humbling. So uh, seven years into your refereeing career, you got to the 2018 season, uh, Women's Premier League season, which uh, appeared to be quite a groundbreaking season for you. What was different? What were your goals going into the season? So this past season, refereeing in the WPL was such an honor. And it was different than any other season that I had refereed WPL games. And I think the first thing that made it different was that you had to apply to become a WPL referee, as you know. And that made me think about really what I wanted to make of this season before the season even started and before I was assigned to any matches. And I decided from the outset that... I've refereed WPL before, but this year I want to do a really good job. I want the teams to get value out of me being their referee. And I want them to enjoy when I'm refereeing their games because they feel like it's fair and that there's consistency. The other thing that was different was that we had um, such a structured program with the video self review and being able to do self-analysis and having a coach who was dedicated to me. And my coach was Joe Zevin out of Colorado. And we would have our phone calls on Monday night or Tuesday. So that was nice to have someone who was dedicated, particularly to me and my game, to talk about anything I had a question about or to maybe bring things to my attention that I wasn't really aware of before, trying to see trends of things that I do in my games or things that I did in that particular game that maybe I didn't pick up on myself. And then the last thing that was different was that we had these uh, weekly phone calls, which allowed me to be part of a referee team during 15s, which as far as refereeing locally, we'd never really had that um, possibility before. So not only could I talk about my game and give the, the bigger picture of what was happening with the teams I was refereeing. But I was also getting a summary of that from every other referee in the WPL. And I think learning from the things that they saw in their games and the tricky things that they had seen and the things they had done well was really valuable. So have you found the experience? Because, you know, obviously the uh, when we put an advantage out there, we didn't really know where it was going to go. But, of course, it's, it's given everyone an opportunity to to do self-analysis and self-review. Uh, have, have you found that uh, the learning curve with that and the, the experience that you go through reviewing your entire game? So when I first started, obviously the software learning was a little bit of hurdle 
to get over. But um, after that, I think the biggest thing that once I got made the biggest difference was learning that I could just be open about and honest about what I saw happening in the game and what I saw myself doing and whether it was correct or not, just to be honest with myself so that I can put that out and see throughout the game, where are the places where I feel like I'm not making the correct decision or I'm not in the correct position. And I think from there, I could actually identify trends much better. And as soon as I decided that it didn't really matter if I admitted that I was wrong on this particular thing, I could learn from that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for everyone that's been involved with uh, with all the different competitions, and uh, you you know you're obviously part of the major league rugby calls as well. It's just an ongoing process of learning all the time. And how have you found being part of the the MLR calls? I think the MLR calls are really cool because it's new referees who I haven't heard speak before, but also people coming from different parts of the world who all kind of have the same feelings. I think through self review, so. Sometimes you think, oh, man, I can't believe I did that. And other times you think, oh, wow, that looks really good. I was kind of unsure about that call, but that's definitely the right thing. And just seeing how the other referees work together and how they give each other advice um, and how they work with their coaches is really valuable. So it's interesting because, we, we, you know, we're kind of exploring uh, working with coaches and we, you know, as with the uh, women's premier league you had you only had like four to six games i think so you know you worked with one coach do you think if you had a season over like 10 to 12 games that it might be uh, good to work with uh, different coaches over that period so maybe you yeah, work with three coaches if you had 12 games yeah i definitely think that having one coach for multiple games is very valuable but i think having them for too many games could maybe hinder the growth that you can have. And every time you get a fresh set of eyes looking at your game, I think it brings something new and a new perspective that you wouldn't necessarily get. And through the advantage system, being able to actually have the coaches make comments directly on either particular clips or particular aspects of your game puts an even higher level of perspective on the game. And, uh, you know, we've just, obviously you've seen that we introduced now the individual performance plan and the focus areas and the game plan. Uh, What are your thoughts on those? So when I first looked at it, I was thinking, okay, this is the same as every other kind of plan where a referee is trying to put out their goals on paper. But then looking at it in more detail, it actually is a little bit different in that there's really a plan for how you're going to get after your key factors and how you like developing the triggers, which we've been talking about quite a bit in both MLR and now the D1A calls. The triggers could be something really, really valuable that I think a lot of referees may not have thought of before. And you may have an idea of what a trigger is, or you might be using triggers without actually giving them that word. So um, I guess, an example of what I mean by that is like during one of the D1A games that I did, the defensive team kept winning the line out and I didn't realize that they were closing the gap. But if I had thought about that, why is the defensive team winning the line out? That's my trigger. Then I could have identified it during the game in real time. And it would have made a difference at least for the team throwing in the ball on those few line outs. You're going to the World Rugby High Performance Camp in South Africa, which is the first one that uh, World Rugby are presenting for women referees and women referee coaches as well. 
Um, it's going to be facilitated by Alambra Nieves, uh, Alain Roland, and Chris Pollock, who's obviously, you know, always on the uh, Major League Rugby calls. Uh, what, do you, what do you anticipate from it? And uh, would you have goals going into it? And what do you think? It's a, is it a launch pad to something more? So I'm incredibly honored to have been selected to go to this camp. And going in, I'm currently still figuring out the last bits of my individual performance plan. Um, so as far as I understand, there's going to be some refereeing at the camp and also some um, other sessions where um, we're discussing things, I would assume. Um, but I hope that um, coming out of it, I will have first of all, met a bunch of other referees from around the world who are equally as dedicated and focused and excited to learn as much as possible. And secondly, um, this is a potential launching pad, um, hopefully for refereeing international matches. And I hope that I can show them that I can become an even better referee than I am now and that I'm willing to learn and just excited, really excited to be there. So, and it's also a beautiful part of the world. So, <laughs> it's definitely an experience. Yeah, I, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> With a lot of the a lot of people we've we've had on the podcast, they always talk about finding that balance between work and rugby. You know, so that you don't little disappointments in in, in rugby doesn't really ruin your week or your month. Uh, how, how do you find that? Because obviously you, you know, you have live a very structured uh, work life. How does that fit in with rugby? So working as a researcher, you're kind of used to things maybe not working out exactly as you planned. And I think that has prepared me for rugby refereeing because you can't plan whether you're going to get a certain assignment or whether a certain game is going to happen in your region and they're going to assign it to you. So I think I'm used to minor disappointments from being a scientist, but as well, I have <laughs> quite a busy schedule um, doing biological research. I do experiments, so when they're ready, I just have to do those experiments. But it really comes down to planning. I plan to do work during certain hours, and I plan to do rugby things in other time blocks, and if those have to overlap or intermingle, that's okay. You just have to be fluid and flexible and realize that even if you've spent hours developing a plan of how everything could go perfectly, sometimes things aren't going to go according to your plan. So I think the individual performance plan <laughs> would be something good to explore for yourself, you know, when you have your, what's your <laughs> current reality and uh, your success goals, you know, when you when those success goals are things are only the things that you can control. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I think that's the most important thing because if you if you have something that's a goal that you can't control, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. And that's when you beat yourself up and you get down on yourself and even worse, you get down on other people. You're mad about the fact that, you know, so and so was selected over you and it's really it's not worth it. It's a waste of energy especially when you have other things going on in your life. Yeah. No, absolutely. So, uh, Amelia, it's been great to be witness to your achievements in refereeing and, you know, being selected for this World Rugby High Performance Camp. With the current landscape in the USA, um, how is it different to when you started? What advice would you give to someone interested in taking up the whistle? When I first started refereeing, there were opportunities available for female referees. And I think those opportunities are just expanding, um, not even just female referees, but any young fit referee who's keen to learn 
can really have so many opportunities to travel, to meet other new referees, and to really raise the level of the game in the U.S. And I think that's one of the areas where U.S. rugby is really lacking is in our quality and quantity of referees. So if someone is thinking about refereeing, I would say definitely go for it. If you don't like it, you can always stop. But if you do like it, it just opens a whole new world for you that's beyond what I could have imagined it would be. It's really interesting, exciting now that we have uh, we have so much rugby <laughs> going on at the moment. I can't even remem- remember ever watching so many games in the USA. You know, everyone's got video, and of course with Major League Rugby, uh, which you'll be on the line for upcoming. Yeah, let's hope it's warm when you're on the line there. I see a couple of the games have, <laughs> have been in the snow. I can't even imagine what it must be like to be on the sidelines. It's a lot easier watching it from your from your home, you know? Yeah, exactly. April is usually not too bad around here. And then May, you're off to uh, Stellenbosch. So thanks a lot for your time. Really appreciate it. And I uh, hope you have a great day at the lab. <laughs> <laughs> From all of us uh, in the US, we wish you all the best in South Africa. And we're really excited to follow your career and see where we go from here. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Check out AdvantageReferee.com, software and elite consulting services to help you become the referee everyone wants on their game. Thank you for joining us. This is Richard Everett.